That's one thing I was always able to do through the years is get my kids to play hard. If you played harder than me, that pissed me off. I wanted my team to know that. I even had a year where I didn't think we played that hard. So our thing was that whole year after about six games, the first thing I would say at the end of every first quarter was who played harder, them or us? That would be the first question I asked in the timeout between quarters. I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former NBA assistant, Division I and Junior College head coach, and now Clovis West High School head coach, Vance Wahlberg. Coach Wahlberg is here today to discuss the history, philosophy, teaching points, and fundamentals of the dribble drive motion offense. And we talk playing hard and full court pressure during the always fun start, sub, or sit. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coach Vance Wahlberg. Coach, we're going to dive right in with something that I know you've spoken a ton on. You teach all the time and you're very well known for dribble drive motion offense. And we kind of want to just start with sort of the history, philosophy and background of it and really how you got to it as a coach yourself, you know, many years ago when you put this in and decided that this was a way you wanted to play. And then we can dive into some of the tactical and details of it. But just to start, when you first started to think this is how you want to play, where did that come from and why did you get to that place? It actually came more from the defensive side than anything else. I was always, and still am, and I laugh all the time, I always get asked to do clinics on the dribble drive, and my favorite part is the defense, to be honest with you. Back in 1986, I used to go watch a different coach every year when I was a high school coach for a week. I would spend a week with them, call them up. 86, I saw Bobby Knight. 87, I saw Lute Olsen. 88, I saw Krzyzewski and Dean Smith and Jimmy Balvano, and I did that all the way up to when I was lucky enough to be a D1 coach. So I always wanted to learn. I always wanted to get better. One year, I wanted to see Nolan Richardson at Arkansas. I always liked pressing. I was a basic press guy, nothing fancy, 2-2-1. And just more I watched him. And this came back, maybe changed a few things on our press. And the next thing I know, we couldn't run any of our offense. And so what happened, because we went trap for trap, it really screwed up my whole offense. And I started going to that defense. So I would do part of my practice with offense. Okay, then I have to stop, work on the defense, but I couldn't run any offense because we couldn't run the offense because of that. So what ended up happening is through doing the defense, it actually created the offense. And that's how it came about. And each year when we started, this is probably... I'd say 96, 97 in that area, 98 in that area, when I started running parts of the dribble drive. Really, the players were the ones that really taught me how to run. And whatever they could do, we took advantage of. I never came out and said, hey, this is the dribble drive or this is what we're going to do. It just evolved through the years. And it's going to continue to evolve. The main principles will never change. You know, number one is the attack mentality. Number two is always open the gaps. And three is have the proper spacing. So those three things will never change. And then the other thing that made me really think about it is we were playing a team in that mid-90s or whatever. We lost to them twice during the season. We had to go to their place for the playoffs. And I kind of threatened my team and said, if anybody takes an outside shot, I'm pulling you out. They only played like five, five and a half, six, you know, say six, six and a half players, six to seven. One or two subs that didn't play a lot. So I wanted to do is I wanted to get them in foul trouble. I thought that was the only chance we would have. So we went to the rack. We went to the rack. We went to the rack. He was an older-fashioned coach where I knew he was going to play straight man. He wouldn't change. Just felt he had better players than we did, and he did. So we did that. Ended up being up like 18 and a half times, one by 28. So it kind of made me think, what if everything we did was to the rack, to the rack, to the rack? Now, obviously, that's not all you can do. you got to be able you know, the space of four and so forth. But that kind of started me thinking, why not every time we shoot the ball, let's try and get three points out of it, whether it's the old-fashioned and one or the open three. And through bits and pieces of that, that's really 
the way that my thought, my thinking for the offense. The other thing that I really changed back in the 80s and the 90s, traditional basketball was the center, power forward, small forward, two guards. A lot of teams played two bigs down on the block. And I went to one big on the block. And then what happened, I had a special group of kids. I had a lot of guards in high school. You know, very rarely do you get a big, you know, for me, I very rarely ever get a big kid. You always got a ton of guards. So I had a guard that was really good. He beat his man, but the post was always down on the same side. So what I did is let's say, let's move the post to the opposite side to open up his driving lane. And then from there, bits and pieces of the offense changed. If you watch the NBA now, it's really changed. I really feel because of what we started a long time ago, you know, that person down in that low post, you know, everybody calls the dunker now. You notice in the NBA, unless you have a dominant center, he's usually away from the ball, open up the driving lanes. You watch how they drive, throw the lob. And we just, you know, it has grown that way. Coach, you just mentioned a lot of stuff we want to come back to and, and dive into a little bit more. Going back to the inception of this idea, what were you doing before this offensively? I'm a West Coast guy, and I was from the Bay Area, and Carol Williams from Santa Clara was a big flex guy. My high school coach, we used to have like three plays, 10, 15, and 20. That means 10 passes before you could shoot, 15 passes before you can shoot. And I mean, he was old-fashioned. We got to the mid-30s, we were really good, you know, and I hated that. I worked one of Carol Williams' camps, and he was big in our area. I did a lot of variations off the flex. So I was really running the flex at that time. When you came back from visiting Nola Richardson and implemented more of that press, how was it affecting your offense that instigated you changing it? What I did on that press, Patrick, is I went to what I call vertical traps. Okay, so if, let's say, take the Kentucky press, where they would always come up, trap. Well, in high school, I had little guys. So if they came down the sideline and if my half-court guy came up, they just throw it over to the two-on-one or whatever else. So my goal was we wanted to turn that. So we would pressure the ball. So imagine it's in a two-two-one. The man on the ball, we call the controller. The man next to the ball, we call a gapper. And a gapper's job was not to get trapped and go make a trap. But down the side of the ball, we call the taker. And we wanted to take that pass away. So if they came down the side, we went back with the half-court guy and we try to trap with those other two. If it did go over our heads, we would go to the next trap. So let's say there was two guys on the ball in the trap, and it was a vertical pass. One of those two guys would follow it, trap it. The next guy would be what we call a seat and fix it. So we went from trap to trap to trap, and it really screwed up. I mean, we couldn't run our offense. And I mean, there were so many teams in our era that we were, thought we were zoning or whatever else, but it's really a true man-to-man. But anytime it was a vertical pass, it was a trap. Anytime it was horizontal, we went to our man defense and stayed in the gaps. Coach, we'll probably get back to the press stuff later here in the show. So we'll circle back. I wanted to ask you about ball movement because you just mentioned how where you came from a place where learning flex and 10 passes, 15 passes, balls constantly moving, constantly moving. And with the dribble drive, I would imagine there's a little bit of a shift in your thinking as far as how many passes you're going to make and more of it being, you know, advantages created off of a dribble and playing from that. Was that a tough shift for you? Was it a shift or how do you think about how much the ball moves in dribble drive versus some of the older offenses you were taught? Before I start the that, what I want to make sure, you know, a lot of people will hear me or get some stuff and they think dribble drive, it's dribble, dribble, dribble. And it's not. That's one thing I want to make sure people understand. I don't like my players. If they want to play with the ball, they sit next to me. Very simple. I want them to beat their man off the dribble. If they can't beat their man off the dribble, pass, move, and we go from there. Now, one thing I will say, there's two things I think you can really teach, really help your players on making them from becoming an average player to a pretty good player. Or if you've got a pretty good player, you can make them really good with two simple things. One is you open up the gap for them to drive. Just imagine if you drive what I call a single gap compared to what a double gap is or a triple gap. The bigger you open that gap, the easier it is for that person to try it. You watch in the NBA up top, it's really hard for a lot. Of, and they're the best players in the world. But because during the regular season, you're going to watch, they don't move a lot. They don't want to move. So what happens when they penetrate one slot to the middle, the other guy's another slot, and there's not a lot of movement. So it's going to be a challenge three. But if you would cut that guy through, open up that driving lane, I think you get a lot easier shots. 
So one of the things that we always teach them, every time you pass, you must cut. So in our practice, if a player passes and stands, it's an automatic turnover. The other team gets the ball. So just to try and keep them doing that. You know, most of the drills that we do, we don't let them go more than three dribbles in our deals because we want them to be able to attack. So I want to make sure you kind of understand that part. See, everything I do is from one side of the ball to the other. Let's go back to the defensive side. Okay, if you go to the defensive side, if I make you make seven, eight, nine, ten passes, the percentage of me getting still goes up. Because we play high side, we want to put pressure on you and so forth. So for me, offensively, if I can beat you on one or two passes or just coming straight down, we want to do that. Why waste the time? See, what I want to do is I want to put pressure on you on both sides of the ball. We're going to pressure the heck out of you. We'll pressure you on a make, a miss, made free throw, miss free throw, made basket, side dead ball. You know, we're going to press you everywhere. Then offensively, we want to push it and keep pressure on you. My philosophy is really pretty simple. In the first 28 minutes of a high school game, when I was in junior college, it would be the first 36 minutes. But the first 28 minutes of a high school game, I wanted to wear you down. That was my whole purpose. Go, 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 go. In the last four minutes, do whatever it took to win the game. Now, if I have to hold the ball a little bit longer than I, you know, make a few more passes. We had different codes, different calls that we would do. But that first 28, I really wanted to put a lot of pressure on you. If I go back to, you mentioned cutting and opening up gaps and space and, you know, having played against teams that are running variations of, you know, this offense, different philosophies. I think how coaches try to open things up. You mentioned that passing and cutting. And I wanted to, I guess, ask what kind of cuts they're making to continue to open up space. Are they just exchange brush cuts type of things to keep spacing? keep the middle open or do you want rim cuts when you guys pass and cut where exactly do you want to cut and why for me i want rim cuts i used to call them t cuts if you would do shallow cuts or whatever else your man would stay lag and jam things up if you rim cut we want them to cut hard and we like to go over the top if we can if it's guard to guard if we go over the top that's the first thing we look for if it's guard to wing we look for the give and go action then once we cut we lag for a second because now i got to see what my man up top let's say i go guard to guard. I basket cut. Now I'm going to lie for one second, see which way he's going, and I'll go the opposite way instead of just going out and so forth. Not saying we don't use brush cuts. We may go corner cut. We go corner cut. We're opening up a bigger gap. It all depends on what we're doing on that side right there. We're getting into all the advantages that are created by the offense and the cutting. How do you think about starting the offense, getting that first initial drive that can then start the dominoes or to begin to build the ultimate end goal of hopefully that, like you said, a three-pointer or old-fashioned three-pointer. For us, Patrick, what we do, there's a lot of different ways we get into the offense. If I'm the point guard coming down, my partner next to me, I call my one of my five, I call my bookends. I know most people's five is they're big. We call our big, our four, our rim runners are four. And I kind of joke around the reason I do that is most fives want to be fours. If you ask them, they don't want to be a five, they want to be a four. So we call him a four to make him feel good. He's still running down the same spot, getting his butt over there. My one and my five are my bookends. Okay, what really taught me this, it was back in the late 90s, I had a really good guard, and I'm going to Stanford, and every time he would get it, I used to have the traditional big take it out, but they would go double him real quick, so he had to get rid of the ball, and then who's he throw to? The big. Well, it doesn't make sense to throw to a big who now he catches it, and he doesn't know what to do with it. So what I did is I put my second point guard as a man taking it out. So now if they double, now we go right back to him on the run. And people that know much about the dribble drive, there's a set of series of drills we call it blood drills. That's really how the blood drills were created from just that one motion right there. We want to take an advantage on that. Like I said, we really want to attack. So now let's say I'm coming down. And let's say I have the ones coming down, the fives over here. Five X is on the nail. One's going to come down, pass the five, cut, start the triple gap action. Okay. If one wants to take it himself, he comes down, uses a step back dribble. That's all my key for the five to go through. We have little to him. He can push his head and tell him to go or uses a step back dribble. That tells him to go. Let's say I have a one that can't beat this guy. He can go dribble to the two. And that starts another part of the offense. So we have all different ways to trigger. Or I can just yell a quick pop. And the two comes out of the corner, we go one to two. That starts another part of the offense. So there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can do it. You alluded to it, and part of our research was the blood drills, what those are and where they came about and how they help build your dribble drive offense. 
if you can do one set of drills, if I was a high school coach, I would do those drills every day. You can go for what we call blood 22, 33, 32, 44. Even I didn't do some blood 55 now. And basically what blood 22 means is on both sides of the court, I'll put a big and a defender. I'll put four, four X on both sides. And my guards are up top. So I'll have a coach with two basketballs. One guard's going to attack the other guard full speed, beat them. So what we're trying to do is teach how to get to the rack. Now when the big guy comes challenge you, can you make that lob pass? Can you make that wraparound pass? What can you do? Okay. And what's great about it is the hardest thing to guard in basketball is the drive. I think everybody knows that, you know, trying to stop a guy one-on-one. And we work on these drills all the time. So our blood 33 is now three on three. It's a guard coming down the middle. We put a three-man on the left side corner. The big, the four is down low. So now we go back forth. It's a continuous drill. It's fast moving. The thing I do defensively, whoever's up top on defense has to have what I call happy feet in that middle circle. They can't leave until that other guard hits the circle. So they can't back up. So what I want to do is give the offensive guard a chance to beat them by a half a step. Now we see how we create defensively. How do we get back? How do we adjust offensively? How do we break it? For example, on the blood 33, if I happen to beat him going to the right, my four is ready for the lob. If 3X cracks down, 3X, our three is going to rise. So I got my drag to him, got my score. Everything we teach him, the first thing we always teach him is you got to score first. You're looking to score first. Second, if somebody stops you, we got to find the open man. So if 4X stops, stops him and 3X is out on three, we're going to four. If 3X cracking down, we got to find and we just go from there. Blood 32 is the same thing, but instead of a man being on the three side, we put him on the two side. Then blood 44 is the same thing, but now we have a two, three, four, and a guard up top coming at you back and forth. To do that, you need to have 16 players. If you don't, a lot of high schools or a lot of teams don't have 16, then we do it half court. With the blood 44, you could do that half court and just whoever scores, they go again. Then the same team goes and you continue that way. But basically what I try and do, it's not really fancy or anything complicated. I want to teach them how to play basketball, not how to run plays. Now, believe me, I have 35, 40 different plays each year for the kids that I have. But those would be called out of dead balls, timeouts, certain things during the game. For me, I want the flow of the game going this way. I always tell my point guards, if you're looking at me for a call during the game, you're going to sit next to me. I want you to go. I want you to push it. In last week's Sunday morning newsletter, we explored the subtle yet highly effective skip-receive technique used during a dribble handoff by Milano guard Kevin Pangos, breaking down the concepts of getting square, changing pace, and reading taggers, rollers, and cutters. We also looked at the London Lions' stagger zoom action, Ludwigsburg's Iverson twirl series, and the power of positive coaching in the Stanley Cup in our best sets of the week and interesting reads section. If these types of concepts pique your interest at all, you might enjoy our Sunday morning newsletter, where we pack as much basketball, coaching, and leadership knowledge as our email server will allow into a newsletter every Sunday morning. To sign up and learn more about all the extra benefits that SG Plus members get every weekend as well, visit slappingglass.com today. Coach, with helping your ball handlers or the drivers make decisions in the paint, I'm sure it's super specific to maybe the skill set of that player. But over the years, are there ways that you try to help your guys make decisions in the paint, whether it's, you know, bounce passes over lob passes? I guess, is there any sort of guidelines there that you kind of come across? Very simple. We always tell them your first look is always high when you hit the paint. If you're not going to look to score, if we're looking at the format or big inside, your first look is high. Your second look is high. So we're trying to emphasize high. You never want to throw a straight line pass in the paint. If you look at turnovers in the paint, a lot of them come from straight line passes. And it's funny because I spent time with a good friend, Lawrence Frank. When Lawrence was the head coach with the Brooklyn Nets, he called me up and said, hey, do you mind coming and spend a couple of days? And we talked to Dribble Drive, and it was great. His first practice, I told him, I said, you know, you watch passes in the paint where turtles go up. And I mustn't. I bet you in the first five minutes of their scrimmage, they made six passes, straight line passes in the paint, five of them were turnovers. It's nothing fancy. All I do is look and see what's going on. How do we get better and so forth? So first look is high. Second look is high. Third's a bounce pass. And I'm not saying straight line pass can't work. It definitely can. 
but your percentage of turnovers go up. Or I'm up and I wrap around pass is another one that we work on. That's a real big part for us. But the blood drills teach you how to do that all the time. And again, for that to work, we're teaching all our players how to move and when to move. And that's a big key. 90% of the time, there's going to be a stretch there. When that guy starts to drive, your defender is going to turn his head and lose vision on you. That's when we expect our guy to make his move. Whether it's a four, if it's guy on the wings, he's either going to back cut or he's going to kick up. We don't want them standing. The only time I want them standing is when the ball's on one side of the court and you're the wing in the corner on the other side. That's when I want you to be patient. Coach, throughout the years, kind of playing against teams that run this well or seeing teams that run some form of dribble drive well and they don't over dribble, like you mentioned, where they have a really good sense of if they're not going to beat their man, they move off of it. And I think within what you've done, you have like drag zones or drop zones where if they haven't beat them by a certain place is when to stop and look to reverse it, skip, kick out. Can you talk about teaching points there of not over-dribbling and finding those zones to look for other players to keep that motion, that ball moving? And that's probably the hardest thing for a lot of coaches that don't know the offense. They think it's just put my head down and go to the rack. The key for the different zones, for example, if I know I can beat my guy, I want to beat him. I want the attitude to be able to beat him. If I start to beat him and he cuts me off pretty well, I just don't want to force the issue. So if I stop in the drop zone, automatically my guys know, okay, the two knows what to do. The four knows what to do. Let's say the two back cuts. The four is now going to flash. If I can't hit the two in the back cut, I'm going to hit the four. I'm going to give him go. Now we open up the whole side, a quick hitter for the four. The four can't beat his man. He's going to turn around and go aside DHO with the three. We keep moving. For a lot of coaches who don't know what I'm talking about right now, it may sound a little complicated, but it really is simple. And I tell the kids all the time, look, nobody knows what we're doing. Okay, nobody understands. You know, if the biggest mistake you can make is if you stop moving. If you just pass and stand and you don't open the gaps and you don't cut hard to score, that's when you screw up. If you happen to cut and go the wrong side, we'll figure that out. And you're going to figure that out because all of a sudden you're going to be in somebody's way. So for me, what I try and teach them is, for example, if I can beat my guy and I get the drop zone, if you don't know, is at the free throw line. So if I can't beat him, I want to stop there. Where I don't want to stop is in the drag zone. Now, in the drag zone is where I want to throw the pass high or the skip. I don't want to throw it in the drag zone, throw a straight line pass. I'm telling you, more times that's going to be a turnover. Now, if I get past the drag zone and all of a sudden I get down where I call the rack, if I can't get that shot because the guy's too much taller, I jump stop. That's where I really love the jump stops. I love the jump stops to run the drops and the jump stops in the rack zone. Stop. If I can't shoot, I always want to hitch. They leave their feet, lean into them, draw the foul. If not, we always reverse pivot. We call it a drag five. Now behind me, my five should be right behind me. Whoever's up top should be right behind me. I know I can drive, shut my eyes. I know four X steps up. I'm throwing a four, four X steps up and three X comes down. We go to three. If I go all the way, I don't have it. I know I'm going to hitch and guaranteed nine out of 10 times, five up top is wide open. I don't want to drive, get deep. I never even want to look at the two because that's enough. Even if you get it to the two, it's going to be a long pass. I'll never get the shot. So there's just a lot of the teaching points that we teach there. The one question I always have for you is, Sometimes you see when a team goes zone to try to pack things in against the drive and the decision to just keep running dribble drive against the zone versus running the zone offense or your thoughts on when someone tries to junk it up against all of this dribble drive pressure. Okay. A lot of people think you can run the dribble drive against the zone. You can't. You're going to use the concepts against the zone. And when I worked with George Carl, one of the things that George understood about that is take away those mid-range shots as much as you can. You can in the NBA. You're going to get some of those. But you watch, you know, my five years in the NBA, the best players in the world were at 38, 39, 39, 40, 40% shooting the mid-range shot. Okay, when you break that down, that's 0.8 points per shot. You're not going to win a lot of games at that percentage. Now, you get to the rack, it's about 60% when you get to the rack. So that's 1.2 points per shot. If you get a corner three in the NBA, they shoot that at 40%. Again, because it's three points, that's 1.2 points per shot. You get around the three, the rest of the three is usually about 33 to 35%. That's still 1.04 or whatever. It just, for me, everything always came down to, can we get a tad better, put a percentage a little bit more in our way to win the game? 
What I never liked is as a coach to go afterwards and say, well, we just didn't shoot well. That's why we lost. I don't care if we don't shoot well. I still want to find a way to win. If I was to ask coaches one thing, any coach, what determines you being a good team? I think it would come down to shot selection. If you look at shot selection, I think that really determines what kind of team you have. I know for me, when I watch teams warm up and they take a lot of 15, 18 footers, I feel confident. I feel a lot better because I know if they're going to take 15 of those, 20 of those, and we're going to take three to five of those, the percentage of us winning goes up a tad. Not saying we're going to win all the time, but the percentage of you going up. So what George did is they used to shoot a lot more. He would try and get that down to seven to 12 times a game where they would take the mid-range shots. And all of a sudden, the scoring average went up. And that's really the same thing that I try to do with our kids. Coach, you've mentioned it before about maybe tweaking it, modernize principles here and there based off your personnel. What are some things that you've added to it or you think about adding to it and still having these principles built in? I would say two major things. I really felt back in the late 90s, I didn't create this offense for everybody. The offense came by the players I had, what I thought would be best for our players by changing things all the time. But I felt it was pretty special just for the fact that you know we were able to score. When I first started this offense, I think we went through a nine. I'm not at a private school. We were a public school. The kids you get, you get. All my years of coaching, I've only had five kids go to Division One out of high school. It's not like I had a ton that were here, but we had a stretch. It was like, I can't remember. It was like 313 and 29 when we first started running this because a lot of people didn't know how to go against it. And people didn't realize we were attacking them on both sides of the ball. It just wasn't one. A lot of people thought it was the offense, but honestly, I still think it's the defense as much as the offense. So the two things that have changed since I've come back from the NBA back to high school is one, I got guards that can't get to the rack like they used to. So now we used to attack, attack, attack. Now what I'll do is I'll let them dribble one to two and then step back. Now start the drive from there. So now we're going to attack from different angles, just not up top all the time. The reason I went this way, I really felt that this offense was going to change a lot of things. And I think it did. I think the next change is what we're doing now. We just call it a very simple 14 action. We run a lot of things off of it. It's just the one and the four. So up top, you have the one and the five. The five will basket cut, and the four is going to come right off his rear. And we flash him between the free throw line and top of the key. Now we hit him, and we play off of that. I mean, if they go under, we shoot the three. If they fight over the top, there's a lot of different things. We just do a lot of different things out of that. And really, what I think the next step of becoming really good, doesn't matter what level you're at, I like to see that four-man be a second or a third point guard. You know, if you can get in college a six, 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 seven person down there that you drive, blow it up, they can dunk it. Or now you flash him. Because now we flash him, cut, hit him, cut. And now he starts the offense from there. He might go to the rack himself. He might go to three side of the DHO. He might go to the two side. There's a lot of different things that we do off of that. We've had a lot of success in the last couple of years doing that. You said something interesting there is how the offense has changed a little bit in terms of you're changing the angle of the tack because you're finding your guards aren't necessarily being able to get to the rack. What have you noticed in terms of why, since you've come back, they haven't a skill set or player development aspect of why they're just not being able to get the rack from the top angle? I think each year we're getting a little bit better. See, when I was at Clovis West the first time, I was there for 13 years. So I had kids every year developing, working on it and working on it, working on it. So my second and last year at Clovis West, we had 17 kids on the team. I had 16 of them from first grade on. The 17th kid I had from seventh grade. So they knew the system. They knew what to do and so forth. And I think the other thing, it's just, it's the AU, it's the NBA kind of crap. Everybody wants to play with the ball, do all this. But really to learn how to beat them is really critical how to clip the hip, how to get low, how to take the first bump, create the second bump. Those are the little things on the teaching. I think that takes time. And can you talk about how to create that first bump? If you watch a lot of players, one of the best things to do as a coach, film them from the baseline. Film a lot of things from the baseline when you see them attacking. I can go a traditional one, use my numbers, one to five, cut and attack. And if nobody was guarding that person, their shoulders right away is facing out the door. It's like anything else. When you shoot, you want your shoulders square to the basket. It's the same thing I want. As soon as they catch the ball and they start to drive, I want them to get their shoulders as fast as they can through the basket, turn to the basket. 
a lot of kids are soft and they don't want that body contact. So you watch the good defensive players on it. When their opponent drives, they bump them off their line of their drive. Okay, good offensive player is going to try and bump that defensive player first. So to me, it's like what I always say, if you're in a fight, you got a good chance if you can land that first hit. So on that drive, it's the same thing. If you can bump them first, you got a lot better chance. Because what happens is a lot of players drive and they want to avoid contact and they go around instead of clip that hip, bumping that person. And a good referee is not going to call that first bump. But on that second bump, you might get it. On that third bump, we're yelling at that referee to make the call, whatever else. But, you know, you can't ask a referee to make a call when all of a sudden you drive and there's never a contact and you're avoiding it. Over the course of your career, when defenses have given the dribble drive trouble or you've had issues getting the shots you want, is there any common threads of what teams defensively do that you have to, as a coach, knowing that really work on with your team outside of maybe you know just great individual on-ball defenders, I'm sure always is tough, but schematically, is there anything that you think about for maybe a coach listening and thinking about this that they should be aware of? Very good question. I get this asked all the time. And I'll be honest with you, teams that want to sag or teams that want to zone, obviously, you're not going to be able to attack as much. So how are you going to be creative? Let's say they're playing a sag and a man or they play pack line and a man. It's like anything else. You better be able to knock down some threes. And we spend a ton of time on just shooting, shooting, shooting to be able to knock down threes. See, for me, there's three types of guards I love to have. Everybody loves to have shooters, right? I think getting drivers are the easiest guards you can find. But shooters are tough to find. Drivers, I think, are easy. And the third guard is a guard who can't shoot or drive. I know we all laugh, but for me, a lot of times, that third guard can play for me if he's a what I call a bitch defender, where he's my controller on defense and he plays so hard, he helps us so much. And he's the guy who's going to take some fouls for us and he's going to work down that other point guard. So. Even though you can't score, you can't shoot, I can always play one of those guys with what we do. So if I can really shoot it and I have a hard time driving, it's like anything. It's like working with a big man. Once he's got a go-to move, you want to teach him a counter. So for us, if I can shoot it, my next counter is to drive it. The other thing I think a lot of people forget, if I can shoot it, another counter is to be able to learn how to cut. Good shooters, if they can learn how to cut, really help them. Okay, drivers, all I want them to be able to do is knock down an open three. They don't need to hit a big jump shot three. Because when you can really drive, you know, every team's going to back off of you. Okay, because they're afraid. So if he can just knock down a set three, that's the next thing we work on. Now, once they can master the drive and they can master the three, then we start teaching them a little bit of the floater and everything else inside there. But that will come down the line. But the hardest thing to stop us is if they pack it in and we don't knock some threes down that game that day. But again, I'm going to flip and tell you why we're more successful against that is that we just don't play one side of the ball. That's why I press and I put pressure on you to get the tempo like this. See, if I just played a straight half court, you'd be able to do that on me. But when I can press you and wear you down, now I got a chance to score off my defense, which I think is real critical. Always an interesting discussion is teaching cutting. And you mentioned if you can take a shooter and teach them to cut. And I'm sure, like we discussed, there are some certain movement patterns or movements within your offense, but just helping players become more natural cutters. A couple of things we teach. One, as soon as you pass, you got to cut. A lot of people pass, stand, and go, oh, I got to cut. You got to really teach that fast. And then two, what we always teach our players is, to me, there's three ways you can guard Let's say you're the two-man. So you're in the two-corner right now. There's three ways I think they're going to guard you. One, they're going to hug you because you're such a good shooter. And if they do hug you, thank you, open up our driving lane. Okay, and just, I'm sorry, you're going to stay in that corner, you know, for a good part of the game. You know, if I got the drivers, we're going to go to the rack. Two, they're going to play flat defense. You're going to be in the corner. They're going to play flat, help on drive and so forth. So anytime they play flat, we teach them as soon as the penetration starts to kick up to get the ball on the move. Earlier, I told you there was two things. I don't think I forgot to finish that part, and I apologize. I told you, if you open up the gaps, that's one thing to make a player better. The second then is, and it sounds crazy, teach them to go and catch, not catch and go, okay? I'm not a big triple threat guy. We put in that triple threat, you have it here, and you're ready. For me, if you catch it in the corner, you're shooting it, okay? If you got to catch it, then put it down on the ground from the corner, you should have been on the move. That's what we try and teach them. 
So on that aspect, so a kick up, so I'm on driving and you're flying out of the corner. What happens is when you fly out of the corner, the defense is helping. Now they're coming out to stop you, but they're going to where you were, not to where you're going. So you have a half a step more on them. When we were with the Nuggets, Corey Brewer was one of the best on just getting the ball on the move and making moves. And he got so many easy buckets doing that. So if you can teach him to go and catch, not catch and go, there's nothing worse to see a player catch it, give a fake, make a move, and the referee's calling travel. They're shifting their feet. So we're on the move the whole time. So if you can teach them that, I think it really, really helped. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto-tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, this has been awesome so far. Thanks for going through all that stuff. We want to transition now to a segment on the show we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so for those maybe listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different options on a question here, ask you to start one of them, sub one, and sit one, and then we'll discuss your answer from there. Okay, coach, we've labeled this start, sub, or sit too much of a good thing. And so I'm going to give you three characteristics that a coach can have that are obviously good things, but the start would be the one that you have to be careful of. There is a threshold with it that could then start to hurt your team. The three characteristics are the first one being pride, the second one, competitiveness, and the third one is analytical. Okay, so start would be the one that I would want to monitor that if you have too much of it, it could really hurt your team. Okay. I would actually put pride in that. To me, I just want our kids to play, play hard. You know, doesn't matter. I think if you keep that same level, if you win, you lose, you keep that same level. Don't get your pride up too much on that. Second, I'm such a competitor. I just love competitiveness. I know some people say it can be over competitive. I don't ever think you can be. Competitive would be my sin. Coach, we kind of got this when me and Dan were coming up with it's just the conversation of an ego of a coach. And then obviously, maybe not necessarily at high school, I'm sure, but you know, when your time in the pros then versus the ego of a player. So how do you view just basically coaching ego in terms of then being on a team with so many alphas at times? Really simple. When you win, it's the players. When you lose, it's the coach. And I think if you can remember that would really, really help you. I know my time in the NBA, you had some players that they were just great to be with. And you could just see the studs, the ones that had a ton of respect with because of their ego. And yet some, I won't name any, their ego just destroyed the team, absolutely destroyed the team. I would just say, if you can just learn as a coach, and that's a hard thing, and I respect the heck out of George. George was really good learning how to work with that. Me coming from where I was, it was really tough for me to watch the way some of the players would act. And I'll be honest with you, my five years in the NBA, I would say... Probably 95, 98% of the guys were awesome, really. But all it takes is one person to destroy a team. Coach, as Pat and I were talking about this too, I mean, these are like mentioned, all technically good traits that if turned up too much could lead to things that aren't as great. And I wanted to ask about, you know, overanalyzing things to the point where it's maybe too much. And I think for you, as you've come the game at different levels and the rise of analytics and film and all the things that you can do now to figure out your opponents and your team and the balance that you maybe have tried to keep with not spending so much time with your head in the numbers but having that balance with on the floor or anything from that realm i think it's a great question if you break it down when i went way back and i broke down the analytics of why we went away from the mid-range shot and they kind of started a lot of this analytics on this and that, but we started that way back in the mid nineties. I started doing that. For me, there's one thing I like. I like winning. You know, after a game, my body after a win feels tremendous. After a loss, it sucks. And the older you get, it hurts even more. And I hate losing. So whatever it takes to win is what I want to do. Like I told you earlier, for me, the best analytics is what did you do well? How can you get better? What do you need to improve on? 
How can you get better? What did you do that really didn't help? Let's get rid of. That's the biggest thing. I know going in the game, for me, you know, we take 65 shots. We're going to take two to four mid-range shots at the most. So I know our percentage of winning goes up that way. See, to me, more important than the analytical things, it's just the little things that you do. So nobody talks about analytics. You know, do you catch the ball with one hand? Do you catch it with two? Do you throw it one hand pass? Do you jump stop? See, to me, those are the analytics, or I call little things, where you can stop two or three more turnovers. You watch how many players go catch a ball with one hand and reach instead of moving out with two. And I'll guarantee you, you're going to see one or two more turnovers a game catching with one. And so those are the things, but nobody talks about that. They're talking about, well, if you take this many shots or, you know, you shoot at this time of the clock and, you know, and all those two for ones and all that. Coach, at the high school level, you mentioned, you know, if you can get so many possessions, are there some numbers you're giving your team as far as like benchmarks just going into every game that you want to try to hit on that you think gives you the best chance of winning? That means your offense was healthy that day. You're going to laugh. No. No? Okay. I really don't. My number one thing is you better play hard. If you don't, you're going to sit next to me. Okay. We always teach about, you know, play hard, be a good teammate. When you walk off the court, did you do the best you can? And that's really what I try and get to the kids. I used to say we always wanted to make more free throws than the other team ever shot. But even through the years, that's gone. It seems like we don't get to the free throw line as much as we used to. But really for us, here's a tough thing for coaches. And I think this would help them a lot. If you really are true to what you believe, can you take your best player if he doesn't play hard and sit him? You know, and a lot of coaches can't do that. And I'll say this, my best teams every year, when I knew we had a really successful year and a year that I really enjoyed coaching is when my best players were my hardest workers. When your best player isn't your hardest worker, you're never going to achieve what you should that year. And coach, do you define it to your players? What is your definition of playing hard? That's a great question. That's really good because my heart is different from your heart. It's just like your players, they all think they play hard and they don't. So you got to show them. We do watch a lot of film. I'm not saying a ton of film, but we're going to watch film on a normal course at least four times a week with our kids. So they're going to see different things and they're going to see. There's one thing everybody thinks they play hard. Then all of a sudden you show them film. You go, geez, you thought you were playing hard. Look at you just jogging back here. Shot went up. You didn't box out. All those different things. And again, I hate to say this, but. If you're a nice guy, very few nice guys, I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen. Their players play really hard. I think more assholes, part of my language, their players play a lot harder. And I tell my guys, I don't want to have to be that asshole, but just don't play hard enough. And there's two things players hate. They're on practice. They hate to run. So if they don't play hard, we just run. And during a game, they don't play hard. Like I said earlier, can you sit your best player? So they're sit if they don't play hard. That's one thing I was always able to do through the years is get my kids to play hard. If you played harder than me, it pissed me off. I wanted my team to know that. I even had a year where I didn't think we played that hard. So our thing was that whole year after about six games, the first thing I would say at the end of every first quarter was who played harder, them or us? That would be the first question I asked in the timeout between quarters. Coach, you mentioned being ultra competitive. And then you also talked about as you've gotten older, the losses hurt more. And I guess I'm wondering like what you do with that, let's say the next morning for practice or what you've learned about handling losses and funneling that into whatever you do the next day at practice, whatever it is that you've taken that ache that we all have at 2 a.m. when we wake up after a loss and the next morning get after it. I guess I'm wondering anything takeaways that you've learned from the losing over the course of your career. First of all, I don't get to sleep till after two if you lose. <laughs> My sleep is really bad during the season. If you don't know, I was with Brett Brown during the process in Philly. And if you want to talk about losing, we lost. And the one thing I respect the heck out of Brett is it bugged him and it hurt him. But that next day, he came in with that attitude of, okay, here we go. We got to get better. And I, like I said earlier, I'm a big believer. When you lose, I think for me, that's more of a time that I can slow down a little bit take the blame myself, take it off the players and kind of back the next day. Okay, how can we get better? For me, I'll get more of my players rear end when we win and we don't do the little things. Just a lot of times, you know, the difference between winning and losing, it just could be a luck of a call, a luck of a break, a ball bounce your right way. And you feel good because you win, but you could have lost that game just the same. So for me, when we lose, I'll take more of the blame, but we'll come back the next day, figure out what it was, 
put the film for them so they can see what it was and really attack what we did there and try to get better. Coach, well said. I'll move on to our last start subset for you. And we've talked about it. We've danced around it. But let's talk about some pressure full court defense here. And so this start subset has to do with it's called tough to teach. And it's when you're teaching a press. These are three different options that your start would be. What's the hardest thing to teach a team that's pressing as far as teaching points on it? So start sub or sit. Option one is teaching your team not to foul when they're pressing and trapping. Option two is putting out fires or basically getting back to even in the half court once you've pressed or you've trapped. And the third option is teaching smart trappers or smart traps and not just wildly trapping at different locations and putting your team at a disadvantage. So start, sub, or sit, not fouling, putting out fires, or teaching smart traps on the press. I think the number one, without a question, if you're going to be successful, is you just can't foul. Especially, I don't know if you know the new rule for this year. The new rule for this year for high school is there's no more bonus. There's no more one-on-ones. So the rule this year is they're going to quarter fouls. So if you hit the fifth foul in the first quarter, it's two shots now. Six fouls, you know, and so forth. Fouls start over the second quarter. So I think it's going to be a little bit, you know, where you really got to be able to make sure that they understand you just can't foul. If you can play good defense and not foul, that's the whole trick. That's one thing we always talk about. There's nothing worse than getting a good trap. The kid gets greedy and he slaps down. So that's one thing that we talk about. I would say number one. And then the other two, again, were... Putting out fires or smart traps? I would say putting out fires. For us, we call that see it and fix it. That's our terminology in our press. And we're a different type of press. In our press, I want you to beat us off the dribble. I don't want you to beat us with the pass. And once it's a hard dribble, that starts our press. But it might be a hard dribble where all of a sudden a hard dribble becomes a bad beat. And all of a sudden we got two guys behind the ball. That doesn't bother me a bit because now we got them moving. But if my taker or one of my guys come up, and all of a sudden, now we got the pass goes over his head and we got three behind the ball. Now we're in trouble. So being smart and what I call seeing and fixing it is really, really critical. For me, honestly, the smart traps and the see and fix are really kind of pretty close together on that. On top of all this, teaching your team, I guess, the types of shots you're willing to give up versus the ones that you don't want to give up in the press. And I guess, what would those be and how do you work through those? Obviously, layups will kill you. But you got to understand this. If you're going to press, you're going to give up layups, you're going to give up some shots. You're playing the percentages. Again, there'll be a game where I could be up eight, all of a sudden be down eight, and I won't call a timeout. They run off 16 or roll on me. I know it sounds stupid. I won't call a timeout in high school. Now, if I think they're killing me, that's different because I still feel my run's going to come. Okay, it doesn't happen often. Now, if I get to that 10 point where I'm down, then I start thinking about calling a timeout. I would say this year, I probably called one or two timeouts the whole year in the first half. I think it's so critical to have your timeouts in high school basketball, let alone college, in the last two minutes of the game. I think you can direct so much more. I think we all seen it. How many times have you seen if you're down eight, you might get that block charge call. If you're up eight, it's going to go against you. So when you get down, I think sometimes you'll get a call here or there instead of burning a timeout. Plus, we have what we call, it's called a streak. For example, let's say the team runs six points off in a row on you. You call a timeout. What are you going to do in a timeout? You're probably going to say, okay, let's get the ball to this guy who's probably my best player. I'm not going to get to my fourth or fifth best player, right? And let's run this play. So when we yell streak, we already have that play in line. So it's the same as calling timeout. Slow it down. Let's get the ball to our best player. In preseason, if we yell streak, we just slow it down. And my two best players now got to attack the rack and make something happen. If one of my other three guys take an outside shot, they're coming right out. They know that. You know, so what you do is you're doing role definition so they understand that. Can't tell you how many games that we won at the end by having our timeouts. There'll be a lot of games I'll go home if we're winning up 15, 20. I may go home with all five timeouts. Doesn't bother me a bit, but I sure want at least three, if not four, with the last two minutes of the game. Sure, the fans enjoy that as well. Not (laughs) as many timeouts. (laughs) Coach, at the very start of this conversation, you mentioned how for the first 28 minutes, you want to tire the team out. And the last four minutes is when you look, obviously, to win. Within this conversation of the press, I just would like philosophically, if we say it's a close game in the final four minutes back and forth, where do you stand on pressure defense or does anything change? Oh, yes, it changes. Again, it depends on what the score is, depends on what that team does. 
that team's doing a solid job handling the press. We'll go to what we call gold. We have different colors in our press. So what gold means now is we act like we're going to trap, but we're not going to trap. We're going to keep it in front of us. We're going to try and burn. We're not going to be as crazy. We're not going for the steal. We want to burn time now. We might have a seven-point lead, but three minutes to go. Remember I told you earlier about streak. Well, we have another we call golden minutes. Once I yell golden minutes, they know now, okay, let's slow things down. Let's be solid on defense. We don't have to go crazy. Keep it in front of us. Offensively, now when we come down, we're going to burn 30 seconds off the clock each time. If we burn 30, miss a shot, doesn't bother me. I just think if I have an eight-point lead with 220 to go, and I can burn 30 seconds off and have an eight-point lead with 140 to go, I think the percentage of us winning goes up. You know, we happen to get that rebound, kick it out. We're going to burn another 30 seconds off. There's just little things that you teach them. And again, I really think role definition is really, really critical. It's the same as shot definition. And I've had some kids that say, hey, they don't like it. We'll get better. I have some kids that I've told before, if you miss one three, you're done shooting a three for the game. And some parents and some people are saying, well, that's not fair. That's not right. We'll go to, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I've just shown you in our practice. Okay, you're like one for 18 when you're shooting threes when we're playing. You know, and we have these different drills that they have to be able to do. But again, you can do one of two things. That guy who's one for 18 from the three is probably my controller because he plays so hard and so forth. I just feel that shot definition and roll definition are so critical. Coach, so do you have certain shooting drills that are kind of like benchmarks for your players that you'll say, well, if you hit this number, you can start to shoot this shot. If not, you're not ready. Good question. So when I say streak, my two best players are the ones that are going to make a play, okay? But I might have a streak three-point shooter on the floor at the same time. So let's say we do a 20-minute threes drill, and you can consistently make 80 threes during this drill. When there's a streak, you have full right. If you're open, you can shoot the three during the streak. And the game, same thing. You have that right to do that. Now, we do that same drill, and you're consistently in the 30s and 40s. You're probably going to be that guy who gets one three a game. We have different types of shooting drills that we do, and they can kind of see where they stand among each other. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing that game with us. That was a lot of fun. Enjoyed your answers there. We've got one last question before we close the show, but before we do, hey, we really appreciate all your thoughts here. This was really fun for us, so thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Coach, our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? That's going to sound corny, but it's probably marrying my wife. And the reason I'll say that, you know, for me, I would say 90% of my success has come from how she works with me. Now, we had four kids in a span of five years. So when you're a coach, I'm not home. I get to school even now, 5.30 in the morning, every morning as a high school coach. We work out at 6.30 each morning, three nights a week, you know, in the off season, I get home at nine o'clock at night. You know, one night I might get home at 5.30 or 6. Every weekend, I'm usually on a different tournament here, there, or somewhere else. You know, we run our third through 12th grade program. So you're always doing something. So if you don't have somebody at home supporting you and helping you, it's just so hard. So the investment with her, you know, and what we do and how we raised our family has been really tremendous for me. One of my daughters became a coach and now with her three kids, she's out of coaching. One of my sons worked with Coach Cal at Memphis and at Kentucky, which was a great experience for him. But all four of my kids played high school sports. I've enjoyed it, I've enjoyed watching them, and we've done an awful lot that way. I think what you give to the game gives you so much back also. All right, Pat, you know, Coach Wahlberg obviously is well regarded within the game and the tenets of what you know he's done are everywhere. Definitely. I mean, I think it's always fun when it's someone like him or Paul Westhead. They're credited with kind of innovating, ushering in the style of play. And for sure, just hearing them speak on it, get the tactics, the teachings. But what I really enjoy always with these conversations is how they think about it, how they arrive there and where it originated. First and foremost, like that's the big takeaway, just seeing what he was thinking about that kind of got him there and then how it just built upon itself into what it is today. Yeah. And I think maybe starting there, we were interested in like what we talked to him about too is trying to at least for a little while at the top of the show get into the history and the philosophy and like you just mentioned how he got to where he yeah. got and the whys and the whys and i think it was interesting to hear where he came from you know running the flex but then eventually getting the players 
I took a lot from that. And it was nice to hear him talk about the reasons why and how well thought out that was. It always seems to be like a very simplistic approach to how they think about the game and whether he wanted to run that press and then his press was messing up his offense. So like you alluded to when it's 10, 15, 20 passes, well, that's more higher chances of turnovers. So he wants to lower turnovers. You know, it's only pass when necessary. Yeah. It's just a very simplistic approach and, you know, okay, I want to do these things. What is the best way to achieve these things? In his case, let's go to dribble drive, let's space, let's create gaps. And let's just build that attack mentality on the defensive end as well. The one thing I've been wanting to ask him since I knew we were going to do this podcast, I always just think about ball movement and dribbling, over dribbling, you know, and I think that that's really a key takeaway for me, teaching point of the coaches that run this well, it's not come down space, take 99 dribbles Mm -hmm. and shoot a three. Like there is the method to the madness. And like he mentioned, like, even though it's called the dribble drive, if they're not making a play and don't have some like they got to move it and they got to cut yeah and i think i followed up with just how he teaches building that advantage or that drive you know what is an attacking drive and the first bump i enjoyed hearing Slots talk about the first bump but i really like to obviously if you're going to commit to this offense take the time to maybe film it from the baseline so you can show your guys like how they actually are driving because it is it's a game of angles in many aspects but especially if you're going to do dribble drive like getting a proper driving angle to get into the paint, really puncture the defense, and then start to make those rims for the finish or the big or the kickouts. But to your credit, you're not always going to be able to get the attacking drives and then hearing them just talk about, okay, if you're at the free throw line, all the different kind of exits or continuations that trigger out of that. Yeah, I think you followed up a couple times too about just the little detail of creating that first bump and then how to actually keep putting pressure with the dribble as well i mean attacking downhill is one thing but then also being physical on the drive and using the angles like you mentioned too was a nice little teaching point i also thought the teaching point in there of like the straight line passes not being a thing for him especially deeper they go on the drive because of the turnover situation and you know the lobs or the bounce passes and it makes sense you're driving and there's just more hands in that straight line lane than there are you know on the bounce or on that little lob I think too, like you went to it, we were both interested in hearing how he builds it with the blood drills too, Yeah, which, <laughs> you know, is out there and just a cool name of a drill to say. Yeah, to, yeah more so the name. Yeah. yeah. He kind of detailed the three or four or five different ways that they'll do it. And it really, it's cool. It makes sense. They're playing from the advantages and yeah, the different pictures that his guys are going to see all the time within the offense and how they work on it. And I think too, it kind of builds in the mentality of attacking and the the pressure all the time. Yeah. The last kind of conversation I enjoyed within this bucket too was when we got into the shooter and just trying to make them better cutters. I liked all the ways, you know, how your defended, you know, can kind of dictate how you're cutting, but I really liked teaching go and catch rather than not catch and go. And he's not really concerned about playing off the pivot. I just like the saying go and catch. And of course it fits right in with just the attack mentality he's trying to build in all of his players within this offense. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit of, as we're recording this, uh, we did a little edit on Pelican Bond and their kind of chop downhill action on a like shake, pick and roll, throw behind or an extra pass that guy's catching yeah. on the go and getting into the paint. Yeah, and like you said, the defense is running to the only, you know, the spot they saw you at last. And so you just get that half a step advantage and that's all the difference in the world at times. Start, sub, sit. I'll kick it to you there. Just before we do, I guess we had fun coming up with both of these as we always do the too much of a good thing we had a fun conversation before yeah recording just the two of us trying to figure out what to ask why to ask it and i'll kick it back to you on this but i think it was an interesting one to just get into kind of his mindset as a coach always an interesting conversation just talking coaching ego but i really enjoyed your follow-up because everyone takes the losses so hard and just how you process is probably a big part of the longevity of your career. So hearing his thoughts on that, and then like you said too, when you win, it's the players. When you lose, you got to take the brunt. So just kind of always, sometimes you got to fall on the sword and just kind of swallow your ego for the success of a team. And as he alluded to, you know, it only takes one kind of bad apple to really ruin a season, ruin a team. And we've all kind of been there, I'm sure. For sure. And just to add to your point too, I think when we were discussing this question, 
you and I were talking about our own personal examples over the past season of one or all of these three getting in the way of ourselves at times. And just on that dial of one to 10, these are all good things like having pride, being competitive, being analytical and stuff can be good. But at what point does it click from healthy to, okay, now you're overanalyzing or now you're being so competitive that you're losing sight of this, or now you're being too prideful and you can't see something. And I think for us, I mean, like I said, we talked amongst ourselves for like 20 minutes about different examples. And I think it was interesting to hear him talk about it. And then I think the losing thing too, I think it's always an interesting question with someone who's had such longevity at different levels. And like he mentioned the process with Brett Brown and I mean, losing's the worst. (laughs) We all know it, but I enjoyed hearing him talk about how he gets up and thinks about it and kind of keeps going. Yeah, I agree. And moving then now to the press, I'll kick it to you. What were your takeaways there? He kept alluding to the press in the first bucket. And I think we had like, it was like a surprise birthday party. You don't want to tell your friend about it. (laughs) Okay. Just wait. Uh, And what about that dribble drive? (laughs) Yeah, right. We had to keep turning his attention back to dribble drive because we knew we had to start subset with the press. I'll just say this going against it a little bit too. Like the style is hard to play against. I like what he talked about as far as like the not fouling and those kinds of things. What I took away overall, though, is this dribble drive motion and the press and all of it. It's a mentality and a style of play that you're just forcing upon your opponents. You're dictating how this game's going to go. And like throughout the pressure defense situation, talking about how they fix stuff, talking about putting out fires and smart traps, I thought was really good. But honestly, like what I really liked was hearing how he would change late game and i think i'll kick it back to you on this but that was interesting to hear there are times where now let's mix it up a little bit and really try to win the game in the last few minutes yeah i wrote down his golden minutes when he wants to kind of control the tempo and then also his street call and i think that was also within the discussion of him trying to avoid timeouts to save them for end of game situations i like those calls just having vocabulary and having your streak calls already set up. So like you said, you don't need a timeout. You yell streak, guys know, they know who's going to get the shots, they know what plays. And then within that streak call, I really enjoyed the role definition and how he goes about defining it and the bluntness in which he probably goes about defining it, but you can't make everyone happy all the time. You know, that's why he had those drills, those shooting drills in place. And what we talked a little bit before, just having like, okay, we'll put in the work, you know, complete these drills. And now you can be one of those street three shooters. What I thought was good too with that is there still was a place in his offense for guys that were non-shooters. Like he mentioned the three types of guards. And I thought that was interesting because you don't hear that often. Hey, if you can't dribble or shoot, normally not good news for that player. But he still mentioned that player can be helpful in the press, moving the ball as a cutter. I kind of like that because, you know, it wasn't just a complete, hey, you're never going to see the floor type of deal. They have to have something they bring, but he talked about like, here's a role, here's a position pressing that guy could still help them in a way. And it's not a democracy. If you can't shoot it, you're not going to get same attempts at these guys that do. And it reminded me, uh, so Mike Neighbors, I said a great newsletter, great coach has done like these green light shooting drills for years where have these different drills that if you make a certain number and have a certain score, then you get that green light and then you have license to shoot it. and I say we've stolen some of those things where you put guys through all these drills and if you can hit these numbers and you know you're allowed to shoot these certain shots and if you can't well you got to put in the work to kind of earn it and I am reminded you know he placed value on those players who can't really drive or shoot but the intensity they bring to defense and obviously in offense and they're cutting they're passing and I really enjoyed his conversation then on what working hard means and holding players accountable and really being able to hold your best players accountable to that standard and being fair across the board. As we always talk about having your non-negotiables, your standards. And as a coach, if your best player isn't playing hard, then are you willing to pull him out if that's one of your standards? Absolutely. As we wrap this up, anything you missed or you had written down that we didn't get a chance to explore deeper from your standpoint? I would say no, but our nature, there's always that itch to go really deep into the dribble drive and how you create double triple gaps but probably for a podcast that may get too heavy and too confusing even probably for us as you try to visualize everything so yeah 
short answer, no, but I would have loved to have really just the gaps and how he thinks about making. I'm sure there's a ton of possibilities as well as to how they're creating it. So to also sit there and go through all of them could be a little tedious as well. But that's something that really interests me because obviously it's a big focal point of their offense. For sure. I guess I wouldn't call it a miss, but something like as you just mentioned, we didn't have three hours. We're not doing a an audio book here, but like (laughs) clinic on tape. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. I kind of wouldn't have mind going a little deeper on some scout specific stuff that hurts the dribble drive. And he mentioned it teams sagging, playing the pack line. And I think within that conversation, my mind was going to like, if teams are scouting a certain way, or let's say they're sagging off of certain players. And I guess how he thinks about still trying to run those actions in a way that still creates the same advantages. And he mentioned it a little bit with bringing that, he calls it the four, up to play through Mm -hmm. kind of a pass and follow handoff situation. And honestly, be something interesting maybe with film with him of just looking at some of those advantages would be interesting because I think coaches that really want to learn about the dribble drive, there's a ton of stuff out there to kind of get the spacing and a lot that he detailed here as well. But I think the next level that I as a coach wouldn't mind is I think the dribble drive, whether you run it as your base offense, I think that the principles of the spacing and the gaps and creating double gaps, that stuff is applicable to whatever offense you run and to teaching those things, I think is interesting. So like I said, it's not a miss. It's just more, if we had more time and some film, I wouldn't have mind kind of detailing that a little more. And to your point, he did reference it. I think when you ask when teams go zone and that you don't want to run the dribble drive, but you want to just apply the concepts. A lot of what you're mentioning there was just creating gaps and the spacing and the movement around the penetration. I think we'll pause it here because you and I could keep going, but we'll wrap up this wrap up. But thanks everybody for listening. Coach Wahlberg, appreciate him coming on and, and sharing everything. And uh, if there's any other questions that people can reach out to us, email us info at slappingglass.com. But if there's nothing else, Pat, wrap this up. Wrap it up. Do it again next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>